Amen. Great singing. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, as we continue our study. And I want you to know that I am enjoying preaching through this and studying it with you because you seem to be enjoying it as well. I've noticed an especially high number of comments about the excitement with which we come to genealogies. I would have never expected that. But every time I come to a genealogy, somebody kind of in a smart aleck tone will say, can't wait to see what you're going to do with that one. But you know, it is the inspired word of God. Now, I don't want to disappoint you today, because we will be addressing a genealogy, but the focus of the text today will actually be from chapter 11, verse 27, to chapter 12, verse 9. But don't worry, I will address the genealogy that we haven't yet covered in 11.10 through 26. But let me start off by turning your attention to the, the centerpiece of this narrative. And that's chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Some call it luck. Others, fortune. Still others use the word success. Some just shy away from a single word because it just makes them feel uncomfortable. They try to explain it away. Maybe Oprah's definition would come to mind. She says, it's not luck. It's when opportunity meets preparedness. Maybe. But all of us recognize through this life, it seems as if Fortune smiles, to use the secular term, upon some people more than others. Some people get the lucky break. Some people are in the right place at the right time. I think you'd be surprised to learn, to know, understand, or even accept that the Bible actually speaks to this and labels it blessing. Blessing. A thousand objections could come to mind at the moment because you think of those lucky or fortunate people, many of whom aren't even Christians. And yet there is no escaping that when you read the Old Testament, tracing the word blessing, it is most often associated with, and this comes straight from a study of the text, prosperity, well-being, long life, wealth, peace, Good harvest and children. In the New Testament, you look for the same word. You try to think about what it means, and you get a little bit of this, but you primarily get your, the, someone's present happiness, their well-being. Think of Jesus and the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who. And then certain spiritual realities are promised for them. Or are we even saying today in one of the songs, basically Ephesians 1, which talks about our blessing in Christ, and it points us to the future. 
For all of our disgust with the prosperity gospel, and it is disgust, I don't want us to in any way think that God does not intend to do His people good. Sometimes in our distancing ourselves from those who say, all right, just believe in Jesus and everything's going to be all right, we tend to make it sound like believe in Jesus and everything's going to be horrible until heaven. I don't want to sell that that way at all. I don't think that that is a biblical understanding. Actually, what we should be shocked at when you're reading through the Psalms is that someone does obey Jesus and they don't experience blessing. That's actually the rarity. That's the exception. Jesus does promise happiness and joy and peace to those who follow him. But at the same time, let's be clear, he still promises hardship. He still promises difficulty. But the reason why I'm bringing this up is because whatever you choose to call it, non-Christian, or a Christian who's bought into the biblical terminology blessing, whatever you choose to call it, the truth is, we all want it. We all want it. But few of us seem to have it. How do we go about securing such blessing? What are some of the, the popular dead-end methods, if I could go ahead and preview those for you, that we typically will pursue in our own search for God's favor? Well, a, a few. I'd give them different labels, and this is not an official list. This is just my opinion uh, and observations of life. Uh, one popular errant method of securing blessing is what I call Christian karma. Christian karma is the idea that if I am good to other people and I'm nice to them, God will smile upon me, and then they'll be nice to me and good to me. Have you ever believed that before, at least inherently? Like it, it happens in church settings a lot, where somebody like invites someone you know, out to eat, and then they're like ticked off that no one invited them out to eat for the next few months because they were thinking, well, I invited them, I thought karma was going to bring it back around, and somebody was going to invite me out to eat. That's Christian karma. Doing something good, it's going to come back around. Another popular method is just simple fatalism. The idea that God has chosen some people to be really blessed in this life, and some people just, they aren't. And there's nothing we can do to change that. And so the non-blessed look upon the blessed with this envy and jealousy, like, why did they get what they got? Another one is, uh, I named this one after a cereal, Lucky Charms. The lucky charm method. Some people actually think, and this is popular in Christendom, that certain objects, artifacts, or rituals can somehow secure for them blessing. So someone has a special cross necklace that their grandmother gave them who was uh, a, a godly woman. Or maybe this, this Bible that's been passed down through the generations, and they think because they lay that thing out on the coffee table, this is going to ward off evil spirits in the house. Or someone who shows up to church and does their devotions, these are the rituals, and they think that because they went to church and because they did their devotional routine at least five days out of the seven, that that should guarantee God's favor upon them for the week, and they're frustrated when things go wrong. It's the lucky charm method. Uh, another, I, I could keep going with this, but yeah, I just want you to see that we, we are looking for blessing in a lot of ways. Uh, uh, many of us uh, have the uh, fortune favors the bold mentality. 
I don't need blessing. I create blessing. I will pull myself up by my own bootstraps, and if if things are going to work well in this life, it's going to be because I did it. Truett Cathy, one of his most famous sayings, the founder of Chick-fil-A, if it's to be, it's up to me. That's many. And then there's the more negative, abandon all hope. (laughs) There's no way. Life's horrible. I can't wait for heaven. It's just, I'm going to grin and bear it. We're going to get through. And the only way I'll ever experience the smile of God is after I die. I think... (laughs) I think you'd be relieved to know that Scripture actually points to a different way, a superior method for securing the blessing of God. Genesis actually speaks to it. You see the word blessing and cursing over and over again. And it's at this point in our study, we've actually made it through 11 chapters. We've made it through much of the opening section of Genesis, the prologue. And you know what you'll find? That it has really been a story of blessing opening chapters. What is it? God blesses the earth, and then what happens? Man ruins it. But then something interesting closes off the first half of the prologue, one of those genealogies. Chapter 5, we looked at it. You could take a glance at it if you like to refresh your memory. You see this genealogical line of Seth. It goes ten generations And then it ends with three sons, one of whom is Noah, providing hope for blessing to come. It's even interesting the way that it does it because it only mentions one child. It'll tell how long they lived, and then it'll mention they had other sons and daughters. Well, guess what? That's part one of the prologue to Genesis. Guess what part two is about? Blessing. God restarts the world with Noah He pronounces blessing upon Noah and his progeny. And what happens less than two years later? Failure. And it goes from bad to worse. Because Noah ruins it, then his son ruins it, and then their progeny pull off the whole Babel incident, causing all kinds of confusion for the world. Failure, failure, failure. But guess what ends the first half of the pro, I mean, second half of the prologue of Genesis? Another genealogy. And listen to it. See if it provides any hope for future blessing. Chapter 11, verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. When Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. Pause here for a moment. Do you notice how this resembles chapter 5? We have the blessed line. It's not the line in chapter 5. It wasn't the line of Cain that was being followed. It was the line of Seth. 
Here we have the blessed line. It's not the line of Ham that's being followed or the line of Canaan. It's the line of Shem, the one who was associated with special blessing from God. You have the same structure, same format, and let's see where it all leads. Verse 20. When Reu had, or had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Reu lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Do you see how the cycle repeats? Second half of the prologue, we've got God's blessing being poured out on Noah. We've got the failure of Noah and his sons, seeming like they're going to plunge the world into imminent destruction. And then it ends with a genealogy that's pointing us to some type of future hope. Because, friends, when a Jew reads the name Abram, they know what that means. It means more to them than George Washington would mean to any red-blooded American. They understand that this is a man who would be uniquely associated with God's blessing. And the focus of the book of Genesis from this point on is going to be on the life of Abram. And I would even argue that it is the most important part of the book of Genesis. God wants us to understand how blessing will come to a broken world. And we're going to see that such blessing fortune, favor of God is going to be made possible, not through one's self-efforts, but through God's gracious choice to work through another. That's what this opening part of the story is all about. It is an invitation into blessing, and it leads us totally to focus on Abram, where he comes from, his origin story, if you will. And so we're going to follow this story under three headings. I'll give them to you as we go. But the first heading would be 1127 through 1132. I would call it the unfortunate experience in Ur. (laughs) The unfortunate experience in Ur. I did not make up the word Ur. It is in the text. Don't worry, you'll see it. But it's actually a rather dark uh, beginning. We have this origin story and We have this guy named Abram who most people want to love, but they see that his background, like many good biographies, is one of humble roots. Uh, He doesn't start off as a well-known man. He doesn't have a silver spoon placed in his mouth by any means. I mean, just follow it here in verses 27 through 30 and think about how this would have been communicated. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram. Nahor and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot, another ominous name in the Hebrew mind. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now, Sarai was barren. 
and she had no child. If you know anything about the life of Abram, you are reading this thinking that it is the ultimate irony. His name in Hebrew means exalted father. When we see the name Abram, they think exalted father. This is somebody that's really important. But you know what you see in this opening text? He is not exalted and he is not a father. It starts off at the very bottom of the barrel, if you will. I mean, again, it is an origin story, but it's marked by death and defeat and disappointment. I mean, his brother dies. We continue to read the narrative. We find out that his dad dies. We find out also that his wife is barren, which is the most tenuous statement of all in the entire text. Because here is a group of people, contrary to the Babylonians, who took their responsibility seriously to represent God through reproduction. Remember last week we joked around about you had one job? They took their one job very seriously. And status for the ancient Near Eastern mind, especially those of the line of Shem, came through family. It's kind of like what you ask for in a job interview, or at least what you should ask for. You ask your superior, what is your definition of success for me? If you think of what is the definition of success for the ancient Near Eastern family, it is what I just said. It is family. It is for them to have lots of kids and for those kids to help produce wealth. It wasn't as much about romance. It was more about economics and obedience to God. They have a duty to fulfill. And if you can't have children, at least in that culture, I'm not saying it's this way today, hear me right, but in that culture, if you couldn't have children, they thought that you were specially cursed of God. So Abram has no status. Sarai literally has no one that she can talk to because that's her only job available to her in that world. She is an outsider. She does not go to mom's time. She does not hang out with the other ladies. She is seen as an outsider. And then on top of that, and this is something that we should be sensitive to, probably one of the the greatest challenges of having no children is that your name, your reputation would die. Ultimately, they will live in this existence without anyone to help them in their old age, and they will die a sad, lonely, miserable existence without any children. It all ends. And that is the picture that the narrator gives us of Abram. You know, it's not just he is personally experiencing misfortune in these opening texts, but he is also failing spiritually. Abram, the great man of faith. But where is he from? The text is clear. It tells us twice. He is from Ur of the Chaldeans. Notice that. It could have just said Ur. But it will even add this historical reference. Chaldeans. Like it wanted to associate where Abram was from, from a land that was characterized by pagan idolatry. In fact, many archaeologists would believe that the Ur of the Chaldeans being referenced here was the same place that was excavated in the 1920s, which was a center of Babylonian um, moon worship. Some even see references to moon worship in the name Terah. I don't know if that's true. I don't know my Hebrew that well. 
But I will say that even the, the Bible itself will affirm that Abram didn't just start off having this great view of God. He started off as an idolater. Read Joshua 24, verse 2, in which God himself tells the children of Israel to remember that their forefathers, Terah and Abram, used to worship many gods. That's exactly what's being indicated here. This is not a morally upstanding man. This is someone who has erred from the good path, if you will. He is looked upon as one who is not experiencing the blessing of God. He may be called exalted father, but he is not a father, and he is not exalted. Look at verses 31 to 32. They confirm this. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. Now we'll find out why they're going into the land of Canaan in chapter 12. But just, it's given us a preview. But, notice this, when they came to Haran, they settled there. When was the last time we saw they settled there? Last chapter, Plains of Shinar. The people who are supposed to be reproducing and scattering themselves through the earth settle in the plains of Shinar and they build the Tower of Babel. Here we have Abram's family admittedly maybe pursuing the promise of God that they heard in Ur. And what do they do? They settle too. What's interesting, and again, research will verify this, Haran is actually another center of lunar worship. Hmm. Right on the northeast edge of Canaan. They don't go into the land of Canaan. They settle. They stop. Why? Because it seems like it was a comfortable place for Terah. He wasn't ready to take on this promise. It was given to Abram. So Abram defers out of reverence to his dad. And they all settle there. And what you see is a group of people who just aren't really obeying Yahweh. And the days of Terah were 205 years. And Terah died in Haran. So, that's why I say that it was the unfortunate experience in Ur. This isn't just needless background information. It is giving us the dark backdrop by which we will understand the bright light of God's work in the life of Abram. So, we move then from this unfortunate experience in Ur to this blessed offer out of the blue. That's what I'm calling it, a blessed offer out of the blue. Verses 1 through 3, it comes out of nowhere. It just intercedes, and all of a sudden, God is offering blessing. Look at the text again. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the first time that Yahweh has spoken to his people since Noah. Yahweh spoke in the last chapter, but he was deliberating among the Trinity as to what how they would judge the people of Babel. But here God speaks for the first time. It surprises us. Abram hasn't done anything that's like earned God favor here. It's just, if anything, he's disobeyed. He's, he's, he's stuck in Terah. And yet God graciously speaks to Noah, and what he gives here is a radical invitation into radical blessing. 
I want you to see both sides of this because there's a radical invitation, but it's an invitation into radical blessing. The radical invitation is in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now, that's not radical for most of us that live in America. Uh, Can I do a little uh, survey real quick? I actually would like your participation here by the uplifted hand. How many of you moved away from your hometown, the town you grew up in where your parents lived? You moved away. Goodness gracious. All right, put your hands. (laughs) I've, I've told you this before, but I mean, that it used to not be that way. I mean, where I lived in Pitt County, North Carolina, we had five generations of people in the same county. And I was the first one to ever leave. And I almost split the family into pieces by leaving. I mean, I'm talking family meeting and everything. Now, the bad news was they found out on Mother's Day that I was moving to Los Angeles. Not a good Mother's Day. But what they were shocked by is, why would you leave? You spent four years at college, just an hour away, you came back, you should stay. It's kind of the mentality of the South. That's the mentality of the ancient Near East. You don't go move away. You have an obligation to the family. You're in this together. And that's why I say this is a radical invitation. It isn't just like, all right, yeah, just go on to the next city. I mean, for... for For Abram, like he is going to be forsaking his obligation to his father. He's going to be shaming the family name. I mean, and it doesn't even make any sense because the guy is 75 years old. And and why is he leaving? Where is he going? He doesn't know. Look at the text again. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. There's no coordinates. There's no address. It's just go. It is a radical invitation. But it is matched by an invitation into radical blessing. Look at verses 2 and 3. Well, let's just look at verse 2. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Paul's there. This is an invitation into radical personal blessing. (laughs) What does he promise him here? Well, uh, first, he promises him a populous and powerful progeny. Secondly, he promises him prosperity. That's what he means by blessing. And then thirdly, he promises him popularity. Yes, they were all peas. Hopefully you can remember that. But this is what God is offering to give to him. He's not saying to Abram, now I want you to be crystal clear about this, please. He's not saying to Abram, one day, somehow, some way, that you're going to have a heaven to go to and you're going to enjoy all this stuff. Abram was looking for that too, Hebrews will tell us. But what's being offered here is a populous and powerful progeny, prosperity, and then also uh, the popularity, this great name, prominence. So he's getting a lot. It seems like a pretty good deal. And, and it's not just that his name will be great. What I find so interesting is where this is located in the text. 
Because do you remember what happened to the last group of people who were concerned about making their name great? They worked their fingers to the bone with brick and mortar trying to build a tower so that they can make their name great. And yet here we see, because of nothing that Abram did, but just because of God's radical invitation, he's going to offer him an opportunity to be great. That's just how God works. He is inviting them into personal blessing, but notice it is not just personal blessing, it is also global blessing. Look at verse 3. He says, I will, now he starts turning to other people, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth, not just some, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now this is absolutely amazing. The the, the entire earth will experience, not might experience, could experience, will experience the, the, the untold blessing of God on the basis of their relationship to this line of Abram. It will be a, a reciprocal effect. If they bless the line, they will be blessed. If they speak despair, it, it doesn't even say curse, by the way. It'll say that later. Here it doesn't say curse. It says, if you speak poorly of the line, you will be cursed. The way that, that the nations, uh, the whole world, will experience blessing is through this guy's family. And what I find is so interesting is that now all curse or all blessing will be mediated through one's response to this line. You know, there's, uh, this reminds me of the legend of the horseshoe. Many of you know uh, that horseshoes, at least here in America and Great Britain, are considered to be good luck. Now, there's a little debate about this as to how the actual horseshoe works. Some people think that the horseshoe turned right side up, so like an upside down you, uh, will protect you from evil omens if you hang one of those up in your house. And they think if you turn it upside down, well, that's unlucky. You're inviting all the evil. There's another group of formerly superstitious people who say, no, the upside down you means that you're inviting all the curses and the right side up means that there's going to be blessing and prosperity. Look, point is, right side up or upside down, that will change your fortune. Or so it's said. (laughs) Whether you receive the line of Abram or reject the line of Abram will determine... Biblically, your blessing. They will become the symbol of God's favor for the world. And how one is oriented to this line will affect God's blessing upon them. And the promise goes that everyone, or every family on the earth will be blessed by this positive response to the line of Abram. It is a huge promise. Now, in Abram, there, Israel, this, this country that will come from him, this nation, will have a missiological existence. What do I mean by that? They are being created for a purpose. They are being created not just to experience blessing themselves, but through them to pass on blessing to the entire world. That's where it's all headed. 
But there's something hanging over our heads here. I mean, we got to think of this. How in the world is this guy going to have a blessing when his wife is barren and she has no child? How is he going to do this at 75 years old? I mean, right now, you should be thinking, as you read through this promise, uh, this is not going to work. This is like a brain-dead individual seeking the Nobel Prize. Or an aspiring quadriplegic Olympian. He has nothing within himself by which he will be able to secure these promises. I mean, absolutely nothing whatsoever. I mean, this is ridiculous. If he's going to obey this, if he's going to like act on this invitation, it will defy all logic. So not only is he going to be forsaking his family in dishonor, but he's going to be doing it for something that seems absolutely impossible and incredible. And so we moved from this blessed offer out of the blue into the final phase. And you're asking questions, you should be, as you move into these last few verses. Despite the unfortunate experience and er, he receives this blessed offer, and the question is, will he go? Will a 75-year-old man really give up everything for this unsure promise? And that's why I've labeled this last section, Obedience Springs from Blessing Believed. Verses 4 through 9, we'll see that obedience springs from blessing believed. Look at verses 4 and 5. It sets it up beautifully. So Abram went. He didn't just go. But he went as the Lord told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai's wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land. And the verses continue. You see what's happening here? Abram exhibits some costly obedience. The text even emphasizes the costliness of this. It says that he leaves his family, but then it mentions the inconvenience of it all because it says that he takes all his possessions with him, and it says he takes all of his people with him. You need to understand that, that families in that culture were like big businesses. You know, these were, these were like wealthy people who managed livestock and farms and they didn't just, like, move in the local minivan. I mean, it was an entourage of people. Abram doesn't just go on an exploratory journey to, like, seek out a new place to live. He brings everybody. He even brings his nephew. Like, I don't bring my nephew anywhere. I don't even know the last time I talked to my nephew. And yet Abram brings his nephew along. I mean, like, it is, like, that kind of thing for him. He is sold that this is where we're going to go. And it says he brings all of his stuff. And then notice this. The text makes it really clear. It says that he enters into the land of Canaan. And then it adds that other phrase, when he entered into the land of Canaan. This time he doesn't just go up to the land of Canaan. He actually goes into the land of Canaan. We see a costly obedience on display here. And and the question that, that I ask as I read this is how? How in the world does a man convince himself that he will obey God in such a radical way? Is it because of his family background? Well, not Abram. Is it because of his indomitable will? As you continue to read the story, you'll not be too impressed with Abram's will. Is it because of his superior giftedness that he obeys in this ways? Well, he didn't have much given to him. 
yet. Is it his inherent morality? Nope, he's failing there too. Maybe it's his religious instincts. Look, I don't think that anything from his lunar moon-worshipping background was going to help him in the land of Canaan. Right now, you're looking at all the resources, and you should be thinking, I don't have a clue how he did this. But that's not all he does. He doesn't just exhibit this costly obedience, but he also exhibits a passionate worship. I mean, that's where the text will continue to go. Verses 6 through 9, notice what happens. Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. Now, this is a good little point of uh, conflict because uh, people who are reading this understand the oak at Moreh to be a place of worship. Moreh in Hebrew means teacher. Most historians can trace back to this time that the Oak at Moriah was a place where the pagans would go to these tall oak trees and try to divine the will of the gods. This is where they would learn. Abram not only goes into Canaan, he parks it at one of their centers of pagan worship. And you're kind of wondering, like, what's going to happen here? Well, notice what happens. Number seven, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. Notice the note, the Canaanites were in the land. This land that is dominated by the Canaanites. This land that is populated with pagan enemies. Abram's going to possess this land. God finally gives him the green light and he says, okay, you're there. And Abram's looking around thinking, But there's a bunch of Canaanites here, and they're worshiping trees and stuff. Are you sure this is it? And he says, no, you're there. And Abram doesn't worship like the pagans do. What does Abram do? He exhibits this passionate worship, because right in the middle of all this hullabaloo going along, it says in verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram, he speaks to him, and then so he, Abram, built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. This is a very public event. This wasn't a quick prayer and then be on your way. He builds an altar. He is saying to the pagans around him, this land will be characterized by the worship of Yahweh. It continues in verse 8. His passionate worship. From there, he moved to the hill country. He's, he's on tour. It's like an open house of this land of promise. And he goes on to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent and Bethel on the west, and Ai on the east. And what did he do there? And there he built an altar to the Lord. (laughs) And he goes there, and in faith he builds an altar and says, this place is going to be characterized by the worship of Yahweh. And then it says, and called upon the name of the Lord. Remember, we saw that at the end of chapter 4. This is Hebrew shorthand for the appropriate worship of Yahweh. The, the God of the Bible. He says, this will be that place. And what we get from the end of the narrative is verse 9. And Abram journeyed on, still continuing toward the Negev. The Negev is just the southern border of Canaan. It's like he's touring the whole place and you just assume that the same thing's going to happen everywhere else he goes. He is like on fire. He is worshiping in just an amazing way. And again, the, the, the question kind of comes to mind. How? How does this guy, from such a, 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 a no-name pagan background, begin to worship God so extravagantly? Does he, does he pray it down? Does he work it up? 
Was he born with it? Does he listen to emotionally driven worship music to get him in the mood? Let me answer both the questions at the same time. The question before us is, how does Abram exhibit such costly obedience? How does Abram display such passionate worship? Here's the answer. Belief in the blessing of God. Belief in the blessing of God. The author of Hebrews speaks to this very moment. And you don't even need another Bible verse to substantiate this, but it's good to hear it. When he is speaking of Abram, he says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. And how did that happen? By faith. Um, it, it doesn't take a Bible scholar to figure this out. Really, why would he obey or respond to such a radical invitation? Is it because he just loves pain and challenge and adventure? No, it is because he actually believed that God would do what he said he was going to do. And that's what enabled the obedience. What causes a pagan to all of a sudden begin to worship God in an appropriate way, unlike we've seen since Genesis chapter 4? It is belief in this God who has provided blessing. The belief enables the obedience and the adoration. This is where it all goes. Despite his unfortunate experience in Ur, this offer of blessing out of the blue has sprung obedience through belief. Hear me well, church. We will never obey. We will never worship until we first believe. In light of this, let me leave you with two immensely practical admonitions. See, two things in this text that will help you this week. First, there is an example to emulate. There's an example here for you to emulate, for you to follow. And I don't normally do this. I, I, I caution people against reading the Old Testament always looking for an example to follow. Because uh, we're going to see just in the next few chapters that there's some really bad examples to follow. But the inspired scriptures themselves all throughout the New Testament will point to Abram in specific and say, this guy at this moment is an example for all who will enter into the blessing of God. Alright, so just know, I'm not taking the shortcut here. This is divinely sanctioned. Do what Abram did. And we see that backed up in our scripture reading. 
Remember we read Galatians 3 earlier this morning? Galatians 3, 7 to 9. Just hear it. Just listen to it. Paul says, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. How do we enter into blessing? How do we receive this blessing that has been promised to Abraham? Is it the same blessing that's been promised to us? Not the exact same, but similar. As Galatians 3 points out, and guess what? It happens the same stinking way. It is through faith. It is nothing else. He makes it crystal clear that it is through faith alone. And then when you believe, when you believe that God is who he said he is, when you believe that Jesus has actually come and lived the righteous life that you couldn't live, and he died to pay the penalty of death that you yourself couldn't pay, and he rose again to give you the life that you yourself could never earn, you can then obey in faith because he is faithful. Listen, I I want to be like, so compassionate here. I don't want to come across preachy. I'm trying to like back myself down for a moment. I'll even unbutton my, my, my coat. <laughs> Listen, some of you are here and, and you've yet to follow Jesus. You've yet to place your faith and trust in him. Or you're working with someone who seems like right on the verge. And a popular objection for someone who's on the fence, that's on the line, is they start asking questions like, well, do I have to give up fill in the blank? If I, if I start following Jesus, is this going to affect my, my uh, standard of living? Do I have to change the, my, my hobbies? It often will affect someone in a relationship. Maybe they're dating a non-Christian. And so they want to know, like, where, where's this person? If I choose to follow Jesus, what does this do for my relationship with so-and-so? Or, 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 do, or does this mean that, that like, that this, this secret habit, a hobby that I have that gratifies me so much, does that mean I have to give that up? Listen, if, if you're asking those questions, or you know anyone that's asking those questions, I say this kindly, you're asking the wrong questions. You're asking the wrong questions because when you start talking that way or letting people talk that way, even if you endeavor to start giving answers to those things, hear me well, you're implying that the promises of God or Jesus can somehow be a part of your agenda as opposed to giving you a brand new agenda. You're implying in some way, somehow, that uh, Jesus and the gospel can become a part of your life, but what Jesus is actually offering is a whole new life. Does this make sense? Uh, In in Matthew, uh, the best illustrations in the world come from Jesus himself. He told two illustrations. Andrew will get to these in his next sermon. Matthew chapter 13, he tells the story of the pearl of great price and the guy who finds a treasure in the field. You remember those stories if you grew up in church? What happens is, this guy, he's walking along in uh, a field, and he finds this treasure that's invaluable. 
And he's so excited about it that he goes and he sells everything that he has so that he can buy this field because he knows he's got so much more. There's no loss. He gives up everything because there's everything eternally to gain. The same thing with the pearl of great price. It's so much more valuable. It's no trade-off. It reminds me of that famous statement from Jim Elliott, and it's just it's so good for us. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Listen, dear friend, on the verge of the gospel, whatever it is that you're worried about in regard to obedience, listen, you will never obey. Stop thinking that way. First, believe in the promise of God that has been offered in Jesus, and then, only then, will you have the capacity to obey Jesus in the extravagant ways that he demands of you. Faith precedes obedience always. To to you who are here, and maybe you're the struggling Christian, struggling saint, and you're still battling the same sins over and over again. So I've prayed through the directory week by week. Some of the sins that I could imagine, okay, self-included. Anger at children, you know, that's something that you are frustrated with from time to time. Or maybe it's just worry and anxiety over not having enough money or resources. Or maybe it's a, a heart of bitterness or unforgiveness towards someone. You just keep, it just keeps coming back to that over and over again. Or, or maybe it's an impure relationship or, or some, some type of viewing habit that just constantly gets you back into trouble. Whatever sin you're struggling with, can I share some good news with you this morning? Belief in God's blessing enables obedience. It is not you trying harder, working more, being more diligent. You begin with Belief in the blessing of God. You say, well, Justin, practically, how does this work? Okay, think through that sin that you particularly struggle with and then start thinking about the blessings of God that have already been provided in Christ. Uh, One is pardon for sin. It changes who you are. You're not the same person anymore who does that. You know that because of what Christ did on the cross, you're different now and you're going to live differently. That will enable you. Uh, belief in not only his past promises, but his present promises. His promise of ongoing power and help through the Holy Spirit. The fact that because the Spirit resides in you, you can do whatever it is that he's called you to do. That will give you the confidence not only to think differently about yourself in the past, but to live differently in the present. You can do this. And then, finally, the future blessing, the future promise. Whatever those good things are that you think you want out of this sin, to know that in the end, God will finally give it in the best of ways to you. It gives you hope for the future. Belief in the blessing of God enables obedience. It enables adoration. Wherever it is that you may be struggling in your personal walk with the Lord right now, I want you to know that the key is belief in God's blessings provided in Christ. That's where it starts. Get it straight. The faith that saves is also the faith that sanctifies. I think sometimes we get in our mind that we believe in Jesus and that takes care of everything for the future, but right now, in this life, I just struggle through it like everybody else. No, it doesn't work that way, friend. The same thing that secures your eternal salvation also secures your temporal joy and victory. It is faith in Christ. And so the text gives us an example to follow but it also gives us an error to avoid. There is a huge error to avoid. Do not get this wrong. 
as I think through this error, don't worry, I'll get to it. But it makes me think of the end of those action movies, you know, like Mission Impossible or Die Hard, you know, where there's a bomb, and like it's counting down, and the guy's got to figure out, like, is he going to cut the red wire or the green wire? And like every movie, it changes. I don't know why. So you think those bomb guys would get it right, you know, like be consistent. But they know that with, with the time ticking down, one's going to re- re- lead to life and the preservation of life, and the other's going to re- lead to immediate destruction. Friends, we've got a, a red wire and a green wire here, and you better cut the right one. Hear me right. The text is crystal clear that the blessing precedes the obedience Blessing precedes obedience. Let me make it more clear. Obedience doesn't precede blessing. That's the wrong wire. Paul explains it this way in Galatians 3. We've already read this. On the heels of the passage that I just read you about how we experience blessing in Christ, this is exactly what Paul says. This isn't Justin. This is Paul. Verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, obedience, for the righteous shall live by faith. The one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. You know what it's saying? You cut the wire of works, you will be cursed of God. But you rely on Jesus Christ alone, and you will receive blessing and righteousness. That's where it comes from. That is the promise. Friends, do not get it mixed up. It isn't that if we worship Him enough, and if we obey Him enough, we can somehow secure the blessing of God. The blessing of God has already been provided in Jesus Christ freely, and when we believe in that blessing, then we are enabled to obey and to worship. Do you see the difference between the two? And that's why I was praying this morning for us as a church that God would guard us against such subtle legalism. I'm not saying don't obey or don't worship. I'm saying don't get the cart before the horse. It begins with belief. And you know, maybe maybe the best way for us to close would be to end with just a moment of silence. A moment of silence for reflection. I want this sermon to help you this week. And you know how you'll be best helped this week? It's for you to spend some time thinking about the blessings of God and made available to you and Jesus. We're about to dismiss out of here. Everybody's going to be trying to get their kids. You're going to be in traffic. You're going to go try to get something to eat. Let's at least spend 60 seconds <laughs> thinking about the blessings of God and how they might impact our obedience. I'll then... Just briefly close us in prayer, and then we will close with a song of prayer together as a congregation that will enable, I think, our obedience this week. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes, and
dwell upon God's goodness. Father in heaven, thank you for these blessings. May our belief in them enable obedience this week for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray, amen.